if the unemployment rate, whatever it is, is always a policy choice. If it's 8%, it's a policy choice. If it's 2%, it's a policy choice. You are choosing to tolerate 2% of the labor force being locked out of employment because you, you could fix it, right? And we talked about how you could offer a standing job. You can have an open-ended offer on hand so that everybody who wanted a job could have one. We choose not to do that. Thank you, David Olney, for joining me in the virtual bunkers still. <laughs> hey, virtual bunkers, I think, are going to be our future now we're doing so many international recordings. True. And luckily, that also plays into the fact that most people are in lockdown. So that's fantastic that we can still get on with this. We also have a very, very special guest, one that I guess really is kind of close to the heart of the podcast in some sense. Thank you for joining us all the way on the other side of the world, Stephanie Kelton. Oh, thank you for having me back. It's great to be back with both of you. Well, it's an absolute privilege, uh, especially with all the craziness of your life at the moment, having just released your book. Listeners, if you haven't read it, it is The Deficit Myth. We've spoken to Stephanie before about it. And David even managed to convince Stephanie to read it. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say don't read it, listen to it. Why mm. would you want to read it when you can listen to the author read it? And she read it beautifully, as I expected. Well, that's very nice of you. I, As you know, I did not intend to read the book but after uh, spending some time with you in Adelaide um, you know you planted that seed and I sort of just thought well he's probably right you know I, I'll just go for it and we'll see what happens so I did end up spending three days in a very tiny studio reading the book and in the end I, I think I'm glad I did well I would never listen to myself so I don't know what it sounds like I think the reaction from a lot of people has been very positive so I'm glad I did it I think it will help you get to a bigger audience for whom listening means that they can engage more with unfamiliar ideas. Yeah. And in terms of the unfamiliar ideas thing, what I kept thinking as I was listening to you read it is if this book had been around last August, sort of just before we got introduced to Stephen Hale, it would have saved me three months of scrambling to work out what the heck everyone was talking about. So it seems to me you've created the ultimate introduction to help get people over that first hill of going, what is it? And how can I brush off all my cognitive dissonance from living in a neoliberal world? Well, that's incredibly generous of you to say. I hope, I hope the book accomplishes even part of that. I really do. I, I wanted it to be as accessible as possible to as many people as possible, not to look like something that was intimidating. It was an intentional decision between, well, me and my publisher to leave out fancy mathematics, charts, anything that would leave the potential reader or listener feeling overwhelmed. And like this was a book that wouldn't be accessible to them. I, I really wanted um, to try to reach as many people as possible and to just break these ideas down. They're not really that complicated. In the end, economics, you know, we complicate it as economists, I think very often unnecessarily, and it becomes this impenetrable science that a lot of people just don't feel like they can participate in policy debates because so much of the policy debate is grounded in these heighty, weighty, theoretical, and you listen to economists talk and it sounds, you know, way up in the clouds. And I just wanted to try to bring these ideas down 
to earth and let as many people as possible in on some of the secrets and kick open some doors and get rid of some of the myths and misunderstandings so that, you know, people can feel connected to the political process and have a voice and feel like, you know, they can understand some things and, you know, combat really some of the wrongheaded kinds of arguments that they're confronted with all the time in the press and from their political leaders and so forth. So sounds like you're really channeling Keynes there, right? It's, it's the whole kind of philosophy first and, and kind of model second thing. <laughs> so the book has been very well received. I've seen you retweet all kinds of fantastic reviews and, you know, people like myself buying multiple copies. What has been the most common question? Because I guess we've kind of described it as a, as a catch-all, but you would imagine that, you know, I guess being even though you've said it's not complex, even people not having been introduced to economics before, I'd, I'd imagine that people still have some questions after, after the book, because I guess, you know, one of the biggest impressions would be that, why aren't we already talking about this like this? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I have not really gotten a lot of pushback on the soundness of the ideas, okay? And so the first six chapters of the book take aim at six big myths. And there really hasn't been a review that of the book or uh, of the ideas that came out and said, well, she's just wrong about the mechanics of the monetary system and the way she articulates, you know, opposition to these myths is just easily demonstrably wrong. What people have done is to say, okay, either we kind of knew that mostly all along, nothing really new in all of this, which I uh, strongly object to, or, and I think this is the more common, um, how could we possibly trust governments to budget responsibly if we let everybody in on the secret, which is that governments like yours in, the U in um, Australia, governments like in the UK and the US, those that are not financially constrained, Jesus, what if, what if people find out? What if lawmakers come to realize that there is no hard budget constraint? Won't they run wild, right? How could we ever constrain them um, and prevent them from just you know, running the printing presses like mad uh, and destroying the currency? So I think you know, it's this fundamental unease, maybe even distrust in government that people are kind of like, okay, but how do we draw lines? You know, how do we circumscribe these powers once we recognize that they do in fact have the power of the purse? There is no financial constraint. How, how do you control them? Yeah, it's a whole new question about having a different politics. And I think one of the things you bring up in the book that's very important about this that I have no understanding of at all is the idea of automatic stabilization within economies. And that seemed to be one of the things you were suggesting was a way to go, okay, we know this is different and we know politicians could theoretically get excited about, you know, creating money to get things done. What could we do to give people certainty about potential, you know, stabilizing mechanisms within economies? Yeah, and you know what, you just used really important words, which was give people certainty. And that's what automatic stabilizers do in an important way. Automatic stabilizers take the decision making in real time, right? You have a bunch of lawmakers and look where we are in the world today, okay? We have parliaments and Congress and governing bodies around the world 
that are looking at their economies kind of unraveling as a result of coronavirus pandemic and then the ensuing economic fallout. And so we have central banks that are responding and doing what they can using the monetary policy lever, quantitative easing, chain dropping interest rates, that kind of thing. But then we have our elected officials, right? And that's fiscal policy. So they're responding with various packages spending packages and that sort of thing, right? To try to support incomes, to try to support economies. But that's messy and that involves the political process. And that means that lawmakers have to come together, they have to write legislation, they have to pass legislation, they do things like the job keeper and the job seeker programs, then they come back, they get cold feet, they say, oh my God, maybe we're spending too much, maybe we can't renew that. Even as the economy continues to struggle or even deteriorate, it's up to them to respond again and again and take decisions and then renew things or recommit fiscal support. Automatic stabilizers take that real-time decision-making away from elected officials. It would be like saying, let's put something in place that will respond automatically to changing economic conditions. So if we put a program in place and in MMT, the key automatic stabilizer is the job guarantee program. So we say, what if government just said, we are going to commit to providing a job and a living wage to anyone who wants work but cannot find a job anywhere else in the economy. It's an open-ended job offer. You don't come back and scale the program down because you get nervous about how much money you're spending. It's open-ended, it's permanent, and it's there. And you hire everybody who shows up wanting a job. And as the economy begins to recover and people transition out of that program back into the private sector, the amount the government is spending to support people in the public service job program automatically shrinks. So that's the automatic part. If the economy got worse and more and more people continued to lose jobs in the private sector, they could transition automatically into new employment in the public sector job program. So the amount that is spent and the number of workers hired would automatically increase. So what you have is a program that would help to stabilize incomes because instead of becoming unemployed or taking the job seeker at a, a lower base wage, you could become reemployed. You could have employment for as long as you need it at a living wage. And then when there are opportunities again in the private sector, you move out of the public sector job back into some other form of employment. So what I'm saying is it takes the decision making away. Lawmakers can't say, oh, we don't want to take that many workers. No, no, no. You have to take everyone who shows up. Oh, we don't want to release that many workers. Well, I'm sorry. You have to release the workers who want to transition back to other forms of employment. So that's the nature of the automatic stabilizer. And of course, we have lots of automatic stabilizers already. They're just not strong enough to protect the economy from a sharp downturn and to help, you know, provide the kind of certainty that you mentioned, David, about I know that I will always have an income no matter what, because I can always get a job in this program. Businesses have more certainty because they know that at the end of the day, the worst that can happen is that someone falls out of, let's say, a $40,000 or $50,000 job 
and into a 30,000 or 35,000, whatever the job pays in this program, right? So that incomes will be supported, so that consumption will be supported, so that the bottom is not going to completely fall out. There's more certainty for employers. They know that they can always rehire workers from a pool of employed workers who've had their skills maintained, who've maintained a work uh, record and so forth. So it's better for employers to know that when the time is right and they're ready to start hiring again, they can reach into this pool of employed people and hire at a small markup over their current wage versus the uncertainty involved with having to scramble to find workers who've been long-term unemployed. You don't know much about their work behaviors or do they come to work on time? Are they able to you know, work well with other people and so forth? So um, a program like this offers a variety of benefits, but I think the biggest one is that it comes with this built-in stabilizing feature that takes the guesswork out. So you don't have to wait for politicians to do the right thing in the right moment. The, the budget will automatically move in the right direction at the right time. Deficit will get bigger as the economy remains weak. And then spending will automatically contract as workers are released back to the private sector. Stephanie, here in Australia, we're starting to get discussion, particularly in Victoria, which is where we're getting our second wave breakout and it really is frightening Australia because the second wave of COVID is looking far worse than the first wave and the Victorian Premier and the Prime Minister are starting to talk in terms of they want to keep the pilot light on in the economy. This is the way they're kind of justifying job seeker. They want to keep people, you know, with this pay level but still connected to companies so that when things get better, it's not a case of having to swap back across from something like a federal job guarantee, but they're in a sense already still attached to the company. Is it feasible, conceivable to make that kind of, we're really, really in deep trouble. We need to keep businesses with a group of people directly employed so that the minute things are better, they know exactly where to go, what to do to get economic action back. Or is that a step too far for an automatic stabilizer? Look, I think that, but first of all, these, these two ideas that we're discussing are not mutually exclusive. I think, in fact, they work better together. I was a strong proponent here early on in the U.S. for keeping workers on payroll even as we asked them to stay out of the workplace. Okay? We, we told people, we don't want you to go to work unless you are what we call essential workers, right? We want you to help us flatten the curve, stay home, right? Don't interact, don't go to the workplace. But we wanted to keep workers, as you were just saying, attached to their employer. We didn't want them to become unemployed. Keep them on payroll and let the government help with that because if businesses are gonna shut down for a short period of time and lose their cash flow, many of them are going to struggle to pay workers and keep them on payroll. So the government came in and we did this in the U.S. as well. We had something called a paycheck protection program. We helped small businesses and others cover the cost of payroll. And that would have been a great thing to do if it could have been done successfully. And, and we had success with it. We just didn't execute as well as, say, Germany, right, who has had a program like this in place for roughly a century. 
So they did a better job in Germany than we did here in the US, but I think it was the it was definitely the right thing to try to do. The problem is that a lot the program expired, the funding for the program expired, and now many of the workers who were kept attached to their employers have now been laid off. And so for those folks, the the job guarantee would be an important backstop when when what you're trying to do doesn't work for everyone, keeping them on payroll and attached to their employer. It's good to have a plan B. And the federal job guarantee is a backstop for those inevitable, you know, folks who end up unemployed in spite of your best efforts to keep companies viable and to keep workers on payroll. So once again, JobKeeper, as we have it in Australia, could almost be set up that if the economy is in this dire position, we try and keep this many companies in every sector alive by putting people automatically on JobKeeper. There's no political decision. It's built in to how the system works. And that if it gets even worse and they fall out of that, then they move on to federal job guarantee. But either way, politicians don't have to keep their nerve. It's just automatic settings that when things get bad, money is made available, policies are put in place and implemented until they're better. Yeah, I mean, you can make the commitment financially to maintain the JobKeeper program. What, what you can't do, of course, is, is force businesses to continue to try to hang on if they believe that at the end of the day, they're not going to be viable. Businesses have a lot of other costs above and beyond payroll, right? There are a lot of fixed costs as well. And so if government is helping with the payroll portion, but not sufficiently helping businesses pay their utilities and their lease and other sorts of things, then, you know, business owner might re- reasonably say, look, I'm not going to come out of this thing. Thing. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hang it up now. Cut my losses, and you know those workers then are not gonna have the opportunity to stay on payroll. So it's true. You could make the open-ended commitment, provide as much support as uh, you think is appropriate to try to help businesses get through this and come out somewhat whole on the other side. But you're you're just not gonna get everybody. No, and again, people I don't think expect that, but it's. The uncertainty of people in their lives combined with the uncertainty of knowing our politicians flip-flop with what they think will maintain power. So it's that terrible combination of our uncertainty combined with their lack of courage. And then once people start to understand MMT, you get to the other end where you realize at the other end of this, because we had Zach Carter on and we talked about his book, The Price of Peace. And I love the way he describes in the book, the fact that what has happened really since neoliberalism became the norm is that when there's a crash and everything falls to pieces, we go into what he describes in the book as reactionary Keynesianism. We shovel out the money to try and fix the things and sort of fix them. And the minute things start to look better, it's, oh, we can't do that. Now we have to have austerity. Exactly. We'll go back into neoliberalism. And instead of capturing the gains that people are still spending money and they're confident, we break the world again. Yeah. You're, I mean, Zach's book is tremendous. And I listened to that. You two had a wonderful dialogue. No, I agree completely with that. We do exactly as you and, and Zach just said. It's reactionary. We try to patch things together. The pieces are falling apart. We try to quickly grab them and reassemble them 
as close as possible to the way they were assembled before without recognizing that part of the reason the pieces all fell, fell apart is because of the way they were put together before. And so this idea that what we want to do is to quote unquote return to normal, just get back to normal, pick up the pieces, put them back together as quickly as possible, the way they were before, and then we're normal again. Well, normal was in our case in the US, 87 million Americans who didn't have health insurance or were underinsured. Normal was 500,000 medical bankruptcies every single year. Normal was 40% of the population that could not come up with $400 to handle a financial emergency. Normal was, and I go on and on and on, right? Yeah, we don't that want $400 thing was crazy when I listened to you read that in the book. I had to rewind 30 seconds and go, hang on. Yeah. This incredibly powerful country that claims to want to give everyone an opportunity has this many people who can't find $400. Yeah, what's, that's exactly, what's going on? That's exactly right. So when you think about that many people living that close to the edge, and then you have a disruption of income because you're, you know, the virus comes and you're told, oh, you can't go to work for the next several weeks. Well, you don't have any savings accumulated. So then you're waiting around for Congress to send you a $1,200 check or to pass some unemployment insurance. And it's your lifeline. I mean, you literally are that close to the edge. And so here we are in the U.S., the unemployment top-up has expired, the PPP support for small business loans and, and payroll protection, that's expired. So now we're waiting around for Congress, and they've gone home, and they're going to be at home until sometime in mid-September because they, you know, I say they, I mean the whole of Congress has decided that this, this can wait, you know, essentially no big deal. There's a wave of evictions already underway here. People are desperate, and there seems to be no recognition of what life is like for basically half of the country. The other side of this, I sort of wonder about, you know, here in Australia, we know that if people end up in hospital with COVID-19, that, you know, this is just going to get covered by the state by what's called Medicare here. And, you know, we have a very messed up system that is public and private, but at least the public sort of works. What, kind of cataclysm does America have coming from the fact that so much healthcare in the US is privately funded with this level of demand because of COVID-19 on the medical system? In a sense, is the medical system another thing that conceivably needs to be covered under some form of automatic stabilizer? Yeah, I absolutely think so. I mean, what you have really is a situation where, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, isn't the system going to become overwhelmed because, you know, you have this pandemic and all these requires all these people to put strain on the system. In many ways, the opposite is happening right now. Health insurance companies, private health insurance companies are making money absolutely hand over fist in the pandemic. Profits are way up. And a big part of the reason for that is that people continue to pay their health care premiums. So they're collecting money from people who have health insurance, but they're not going to doctors for even routine care, right? Because they're afraid to walk in. So they're not going to get a mammogram. They're not getting their regular colonoscopy. They're not going in even for regular dental work and other sorts of things. So yes, we, we absolutely have, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, just about the worst healthcare system Nobody would build this on purpose. It is just a patchwork of public and private. And, you know, as I said, we've, we've got about 90 million Americans who 
now are either without health insurance or without adequate health insurance. People are even afraid to go and see about, you know, symptoms that they think they might have COVID because they've heard stories of people coming out of hospital with bills that, you know, it would take, you'd have to sell your house to pay the entire bill. So yes, we, we need to do something with healthcare that makes the payments more automated, that makes the provision of care more automated. So it could be another form of uh, automatic stabilizer. Is there any other kind of automatic stabilizer that this year has demonstrated is absolutely necessary or does that pretty much cover the major ones? Well, I mean, income support is big and how you do that, I think different countries have pursued this differently. In Canada, they're sending checks and those checks are happening monthly. And I think, you know, maybe there are a handful of other countries who are doing something like that. There are proposals for something like that in the U.S. There have been, there is even legislation that has been introduced where um, Senator Schumer, who is the leader in the U.S. Senate here, has a bill co-sponsored with, I think, Senator Wyden. And the two of them said, look, we should tie unemployment insurance. So the federal government is topping up what states pay to the unemployed. So it would be the equivalent of your job seeker. It's different across states. The eligibility requirements are different and the amount that workers receive or that the unemployed receive is different across states. But the federal government came in and for a period of time said, listen, we'll provide $600 a week extra on top of what these unemployed individuals are getting from their state government and we'll do it for a period of time. So that was a lifeline, 600 bucks a week, right? Extra from the federal government. That's huge that, by the standards of American that, minimum wage. And- yeah, it's enormous. I mean, it's, 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 it was very, very significant and an absolute lifeline for tens of millions of Americans, but it expired. And so what some have proposed, including two senators uh, here in the US, is let's make those payments recurring. So, and let's tie it to the health of the economy so that if you, and this is the way they proposed it, it's not necessarily what I would do, but they said, if you live in a state where the unemployment rate remains above 10%, you keep getting $600 extra per week as long as the unemployment rate is above 10%. The unemployment rate falls to 9%, you get 500 extra per week. If it falls to 8%, you get 400 extra per week. If it falls, you see what I'm doing, right? For every percentage point decline in the unemployment rate, your top up goes down by $100. But it's an automatic stabilizer because Congress doesn't have to keep coming back and arguing about how much and for how long and that sort of thing. The payments continue until the economy uh, or until the unemployment rate reaches some target level across states. So that, that's another idea that's kind of floating around. Republicans aren't interested in that, but many Democrats have proposed something like that. That sounds like a huge leap forward from where things are. I wouldn't have believed it for the world if you had told me a year ago that Senator Schumer and Senator Wyden were going to introduce a bill, because these are pretty moderate Democrats that were going to propose to have automatic recurring payments, cash payments tied to unemployment, I would have, I would have dismissed you as a kind of a kook. Yeah, it sounds like the bit in the book where you're describing your first experiences in Washington of trying to explain how money really works to people and just seeing the cognitive dissonance on their face. It's going against a lifetime of thinking. And yet here you're talking about two people who've got that cognitive dissonance, almost taking a fairly substantial leap. 
Yeah, it, I think that part of it is just the recognition of the dysfunction that, you know, they've experienced with their colleagues and they're just throwing their hands up and they're saying, if these guys will not come back to the table, then we need to write some kind of a bill that forces the action, that forces the hand, because you can't rely on us working together in a bipartisan way to pass the legislation that best protects and provides safeguards for the American people. We, we can't do it. So we have to just write a bill that makes it happen regardless of the dysfunction here. So yeah, it's a huge leap forward in terms of the thinking about how to stabilize incomes in a recession. Which is fantastic because we don't seem to yet here in Australia, we have frightened politicians, but they haven't got creative like that. Going, Let's just have a system that is you know, us proof. I would I would take it one step further. It's, to be honest, ignorance on a scale that I've never witnessed in politics. And maybe that's just due to my maturity, um, as in that I haven't seen much more ignorance in my lifetime. But it is, uh, it is a really strange case. I'm not sure. I'm, a, a good deficit myth for Australia. I'm not sure if you've come across the dull bludger kind of argument that we have here. It's, it is absolutely rife. And that's what this whole COVID situation has just reignited with a passion is, you know, people who are just basically okay with getting paid a welfare check and, and doing absolutely nothing with it. Why that would be the enemy to pick for people when there are actual corrupt <laughs> agents out there. And, you know, we're picking on someone who's doing literally nothing. I'm not sure, but to the point where even the prime minister at the moment, he made some statement about hearing anecdotes of people not being able to actually employ people because the group of whatever unemployed people we have in Australia, what is it? 10% or something. It's, it's some high amounts, like 11% or something are so kind of cushy on, on their job seeker payments at the moment that they would prefer to be that way than be employed is, is the current argument from our well, look, it, it's here it's, too. Yeah, it's here too. This is the primary rationale, so-called, from hmm. Republicans uh, in terms of opposing this $600 a week top-up. They say yeah. it's disincentive. Why hmm. would anybody go out and look for work? Why would anybody go back if their employer wanted to hire them back, if they're better off you know, on unemployment? Instead of getting at the real question, which was, you know, why, why were workers, these essential workers, why were they all paid so poorly in the first place? That's right, know? yeah. But yeah, so like, for example, President Trump has come out recently, and he recognizes that this income cliff is a disaster, not just for the people who are living it, but potentially a disaster for his reelection, right? Because that, it, that extra money has gone away. It is gone. And people, rent is not going away, bill, other bills are not going away, the need to buy food is not going away, and so forth, but, but the money has gone away. And so he is pretending that he can do some things unilaterally through executive action, and he's going to come through and save the day. But he said, you know, he would like to see $400, not 600 And the reason, and he, the media asked him, press said, why 400 And he said, well, because we think that's the number that doesn't disincentivize people right? So it's exactly the same kind of thing. They will and, keep you uh, hungry enough uh, at that level. Where is the study, by the way, of what exact percentage of our population would prefer to do nothing and get paid welfare? I'm sorry, I don't, I don't actually know what that percentage is. I don't think anyone does. They just make up a number. Do you um, know what there are, though? <laughs> there are lots and lots of studies out there that show that the $600 a week top-up has not 
had the effect of disincentivizing people returning to work. That in fact, when people have the opportunity to safely go back, and that's the key, right? Half of the country is still bright red on the map, where bright red means, you know, a hot spot with infection rates above 10% or whatever. And so where it is safe for people to go back to work, they have an opportunity to do so. They are eager to get back and reconnect with their employer, reconnect with their benefits and that sort of a thing. So no, the, the evidence, I think, is overwhelming that in fact, uh, the top up has not been a disincentive to getting people to return. The disincentive is a raging pandemic that this government has failed to bring under control. Do you think it's a, a willful ignorance, though? Like, uh, it, what occurred to me when I learned about the, the Nairu in your book, not accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, was that effectively by design, there is a 5% buffer of unemployed people. Yet our politicians have the goal to say that these people are unwilling to go and find a job. That, do they know that the, the, the system is based on having 5% unemployment and then they're, they're still willing to make these kinds of arguments? Because the coverage of the Nairu certainly doesn't get you know, the media attention that saying something like there are doll bludgers out there does. It, I'm not sure whether it's ignorance or it's mm, something more malicious. Well, yeah, so we're talking, you're talking here about this idea that there is some amount of unemployment that you basically just can't get rid of. You have to live with. And so economists invent these catchy little, <laughs> little acronyms that roll off the tongue, like the NIRU, or, or as you said, the non-accelerating inflationary rate of unemployment, which is just their way of saying, look, you need certain amount of unemployment in the system that you have to have in order to guard against prices accelerating, inflation. And so we just have to live with it. That's the unavoidable unemployment. And we, so we call it natural. Mm. We say things like it's the natural rate of unemployment. It means we don't wanna to try to do better, right? Because in MMT, we say, no, the, the unemployment rate, whatever it is, is always a policy choice. If it's 8%, it's a policy choice. If it's 2%, it's a policy choice. You are choosing to tolerate 2% of the labor force being locked out of employment. Because you, you could fix it, right? And we talked about how you could offer a standing job. You can have an open-ended offer on hand so that everybody who wanted a job could have one. We choose not to do that, which means we are choosing the unemployment rate. But the thing about the Nairu is, you know, it allows central banks and economists to basically, you know, absolve themselves of any responsibility for improving unemployment conditions because you say, well, it's just natural, right? And where does that number come from? We make it up. So we might call the Nairu 5% during some decade, and we might call it 7.5% at a different period of time because we've decided, well, 7.5% just kind of feels like the best we can do right now. So we'll just say the Nairu is 7.5%. And so what worries me, frankly, is coming out of this, we're gonna have very high levels of unemployment for a prolonged period of time. And I say that based on the way that I see policymakers responding to the crisis. In, in other words, they're not doing enough. And because they're not doing enough of the right things, I think unemployment is likely to remain high for a longer period of time. And what worries me is not just that, but that we will begin to define those higher unemployment rates as natural. We'll say, yeah. oh, well, the Nairu has gone up. The Nairu is now 7.5%. That's the best we can do. And then we'll call that full employment. Mm. 
Mm. Well, I guess the challenge then for someone with an MMT understanding is that the, the Nairu as a, as a kind of statement, well, it, it seems like it's there because it would stop inflation. And so, you know, the, <laughs> the other 95% or other 90% of voters that have a job don't want their living costs to go up. So why would they necessarily vote for a policy that you know, is going to bring up the, the other 10%, I guess? So if, if it a, indeed would bring up like the a, inflation. A, it's like a theoretical construct that mm. pits workers who have jobs against workers who don't have jobs, where just as you said, you know, you get a bunch of people who have jobs and if you make them believe that if policymakers were to do more to try to bring the unemployed into employment, that it would come at the cost of higher prices at the supermarket or higher prices, you know, uh, for airfare, whatever it is, right? That's going to hurt me. So, well, no, let's lock those people out because that protects my purchasing power. And really what we've seen over the last more than a decade, uh, certainly in the U.S. and in, across much of Europe and elsewhere, is this complete breakdown between what happens to the unemployment rate and what happens to the inflation rate. This idea that we can't allow the unemployment rate to fall further without prices accelerating is just broken down. And so that's sort of the good news is that I think central bankers recognize that this so-called Phillips curve relationship or this Nairu idea is not borne out in the data in recent years. And so they're becoming more willing to let unemployment sort of plumb new lows without getting too nervous about, you know, prices accelerating. We'll see what happens, you know, over the, I guess, next six, 12 months. So I guess the challenge would be what kinds of things would combat inflation if we were to have 0% unemployment and labor underutilization, even like, you know, people that have part-time work and, and can't get full-time work, for instance. So, you know, it, first I'll say inflation is a, uh, we, we haven't really seen much inflationary pressure around the world for a quite prolonged period of time, but it can always happen. And it is a tricky process. Central bankers themselves will tell you there's no simple model. We can't just write down a simple model of inflation and, and say this is where inflation comes from in all times and places. It's a dynamic process. It usually involves a struggle over income shares, right? Because somebody has to raise prices. Prices just don't bounce higher on their own. Markets don't raise prices in a sense. People with control to set prices raise their prices, right? The drug companies raise prices, healthcare insurance companies raise prices, colleges raise tuition prices, right? So prices get increased. And when you say, well, what would you do to fight inflation if inflation did become a problem? The first thing to, to ask is, well, where is the inflationary pressure coming from? Yeah. So you really have to know your enemy in order to be able to target policy because what we do right now really is we just pretend that there's one way to fight inflation and that the central bank raises interest rates and that's the best way to fight inflation because if the central bank raises the interest rate then it gets more expensive to borrow money and if it's more expensive to take out a loan then fewer people will borrow to buy a house or a car or you know other things and then spending will slow and that will bring down inflation but if your inflationary pressures are being driven by a housing bubble 
and you know, real estate prices are the key driver, or if healthcare costs are accelerating because premiums are rising rapidly, then it seems to me raising interest rates is uh, really not just you know a blunt instrument, but the wrong instrument, right? It's funny you bring that up. I um, have, with my fiance, just bought a plot of land in probably the worst, admittedly Adelaide isn't as bad as say Sydney, but you know, and obviously the worst housing prices of that Australia has ever seen uh, in terms of uh, income to mortgage ratios. And I can't help but feel like that is a mistake thinking about all these kinds of mm, progressive economic ideas that we're discussing here. Part of me is just hedging my bets. If it gets worse, then I'm in good stead. But <laughs> if it gets better, theoretically, I guess uh, my house price will, um, I don't know, it t- things don't tend to soft land. So uh, I'm not sure that that will um, <laughs> be a, a good decision for me. But uh, on the bright side, the economy will be in better shape, <laughs> you would hope. <laughs> well, I'm sure, listen, I mean, I, it's, it's tough, right? Because so many of us, our home is our primary investment and, and the way that we build wealth over time, right? Well, that's what we do. And so we put a lot of our own financial capital uh, at stake when we make a purchase like that. So it's the one major purchase we make in our lives. And I'm sure you bought a home that you love anyway in a place that you want to be anyway, and you're just in it for the long haul. And eventually, you know, the trajectory for well, land and, and housing prices is, is probably pretty reliably upward, but your young guy will ride out any bumps and I'm sure, you know. Yeah, particularly in Australia where we have an uncreative economy where it's, oh, what could I do? Oh, I could buy a house. Well, what could I do when I bought the first house? Oh, buy a second house. It's so culturally significant. It is the Australian dream. Yeah, it, it's so. the thing. So you know, from the Australian thing to something I think is more interesting than the Australian thing, because the fixation with property is not good for us. International trade and MMT, the bit of the book where I went, oh, I've never thought, well, the second bit of the book, because automatic stabilization, I've not thought of it with that name, but MMT and international trade struck me as a fascinating idea because all the fundamentals of how trade work would potentially change where states have more ability to do their own thing and therefore companies have more ability to do their own thing as well. So international trade theoretically would look very different. I hope I got that right. Well, I I would like certainly to see international trade look very different. I think we probably both agree that the model we have today and that's been in place for decades is one in which firms chase after the lowest possible cost labor globally. They look to produce in parts of the world that are most friendly to them in terms of the regulatory environment and so forth. And so, you know, we have seen the outsourcing of millions and millions of good paying jobs across the US, especially in the Midwest, but not just in the Midwest. And that has been devastating for communities and for labor. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's free trade, right? And what we want is free trade. And so what I try to do in this chapter is recognize both the benefits that come with trade that, you know, in fact, imports are benefits in real terms. The things that the rest of the world is willing to make and produce and ship and sell to you are material benefits, right? You get those things, they give them up, 
they sit in the factories or whatever, they work all day, they toil, they produce a thing, it goes on a, contain, a container and on a ship and it comes to you and you get that thing. So the import is a real benefit. The export, the thing that they're shipping to you, is in real terms a cost to them. It do, it's something they don't keep and consume domestically. Now, there are benefits on both sides of that, right? But what MMT tries to recognize is that you know, you're not losing, quote unquote, a trade war because you have a trade deficit. So Donald Trump goes around all the time saying, the rest of the world is killing us. We don't win anymore. We're losing because America has a huge trade deficit. We have trade deficits with China and Japan and Mexico and so forth. They're killing us. It's not fair. So the first thing I point out in the chapter is, well, hang on. In real terms, if you want to say winning and losing, we're winning because we're, we're getting more stuff than we're giving up. Okay, in real terms, but at what cost? And so then you get into the jobs piece and that you have to recognize the pain associated with offshoring, with the burgeoning of multinational corporations and the you know, loss of good paying jobs over time. And so how can you take advantage in some sense of the beneficial aspects of trade while safeguarding against some of the damaging impacts? You know? And so... That's where I talk a little bit about the job guarantee in that chapter, but also, you know, the idea that I, I think the goal is not to just exploit the rest of the world and to find the cheapest labor possible and the countries that will allow you to pillage their environment for the sake of profit and so forth. And so how do we create a new world trade order? where we can have mutual benefits from trade. We can recognize that the U.S. has an important role to play because so many developing countries do depend on the imports of you know, key things that they can't produce now for themselves, energy, medicines, technology, food. And to get those things, a lot of developing countries end up borrowing in foreign currency, especially U.S. dollars. So, you know, how can the IMF and the U.S. and other industrialized countries play a more supportive role in helping developing countries gain monetary sovereignty so they don't have to become so dependent on the currencies of wealthier countries? How can they develop their own economies so that they do not have to depend on imported food and energy? And how can we help them get energy independent? So that, that chapter, I put a lot in that chapter, and there are a lot of different places we could go in that discussion, but is a lot to sort of wrap your arms around. And I, I don't know that all of the other MMT economists would, you know, agree with all of the various arguments in that chapter, but that's sort of the way that I laid it out. Okay. The thing that popped into my head first being that, you know, a big tool of developing and altering the world is, you know, a direct aid. And it's always the thing of going, well, how are we going to pay for aid? Well, with MMT, the first thing I started thinking was paying for aid stops being the problem it is. Because if you can train the people who you want to send to be experts to help, or you can make the specialist medical equipment or the drugs or the industrial equipment, and you've got the benefit within your economy of doing all this, and you're gifting it because the state created the money to do all this, you know, the economy is benefiting and another country can benefit. So it seemed to me that, you know, MMT and trade really ended up to a large degree in my head being about being able to improve aid 
so that you could help develop countries without putting them under huge foreign debt. Did I get that right or have I missed something? Well, that's the way that I uh, laid it out. That's the sort of reformation that I would like to see. You know, that obviously means, you know, voluntarily ceding power. It means, you know, lifting up. But building relationships. So you give up power for building relationships. So one of the things with aid where I thought, okay, I don't understand what to do with this is, so historically in Australia, we had a thing called the Colombo Plan, I think the 1950s and 60s, where we brought people from all over the region to Australia and educated them so they could go home so the countries had more doctors, more engineers. Would it, what would happen if, you used MMT to fund that kind of activity. Like if Australia reached out and said, look, all the South Pacific nations, you need doctors, engineers, nurses, teachers. If they come here, we'll train all of them. Rule is you can't stay, you can't become Australian, but you get to go home with your qualification. Could we legitimately spend that way without it causing a particular kind of problem within our economy? Or once again, am I missing something? No, you're not missing something. I mean, it depends on the scale of what you're talking about, of course. And and so I think, you know, one of the probably most important places to look if you're saying, well, what would be the impact on the Australia? Is there any way this could come back to hurt us? You know, you, you could see some movement in your exchange rate, for example. But you've seen quite wide swings in your exchange rate without punishing inflationary problems or any of that sort of thing. So, you know, the short answer is no. And if we don't do it, if countries like the U.S., like Australia don't do it, then other countries presumably will. China will step in. They're already doing things about the road and that sort of thing. They, it is likely that someone will reach out and try to build those relationships, provide that sort of assistance to, to countries. And there are obvious benefits in terms of the way the politics will align no, I'm not a foreign policy expert, but I can. No, that's it. why I'm trying right? not to let this go foreign policy or yeah. I'll get into my happy place and yeah. you'll have to go, no, let's not go there. So if we use the China example, because this is, brings the exchange rate thing together, they keep their exchange rate tied to the US dollar to keep it artificially low. And then potentially are going to spend money in this way through aid by combining those two things. That's different. Like if Australia just accepted this affects our exchange rate and we perhaps spend as much money as we're comfortable with until it pushes the exchange rate to a certain you know level. It goes down so much and we go, well, we don't want it any lower. We have that flexibility. Does China with pegging its currency to the US dollar have as much flexibility or does it have to work the numbers and the ideas very differently? Uh, I think China has a very high degree of monetary sovereignty. It, it doesn't quite fix its exchange rate. It has for a long time managed the exchange rate, but they have huge um, foreign exchange reserves. And for that reason, um, China really does have a, a great deal of flexibility to do the kind of thing we, you're talking about. So really, even if you wanted to be a developing country and you, know, you wanted to keep your currency low enough in value that people wanted to buy your stuff, you've still got this ability to more or less function like a sovereign currency issuer. Well, at this point, I think that, you know, yes, in China's case, because okay. there has been for so many years 
this huge accumulation of foreign exchange reserves. And, you know, from an MMT perspective, you could say, well, why, why did China do this to themselves? Why would they have wanted to keep their currency artificially weak and, you know, spend so much uh, of their energy orienting production around export? Why, why produce for the rest of the world? Well, there were a lot of benefits. You know, they learned a lot in terms of the technology transfer and all of that sort of thing, having U.S. companies and others come and, and put, you know, plants in China. And um, so there have been benefits for sure. But at some point, I think it's reasonable to think that China would want to start producing less as a total, you know, of uh, their output for the rest of the world and, and develop and keep more internally. And so then that should have implications for how they manage their currency as well. The goal is not, you know, net export driven growth over time, um, but greater desire to produce and keep things domestically, raise standard of living and so forth. Um, they may let go of some of that currency management or manipulation over time. And there's the ultimate irony. We get back to the point of going, well, here in the West, we haven't had real wage growth for so long. So low cost Chinese imports were the way of making up for people not having any more buying power. So the reality is we needed the cheap stuff. The Chinese saw benefits in the cheap stuff. But over time, as we become aware that we've thrown away the good jobs that have wage growth and the Chinese want you know, more sort of economic security that doesn't depend on chasing that market for the cheapest thing. Everyone really needs to reform their economy for different reasons at the same time. Yep. We have a big discussion about manufacturing in Australia. And I like to think that we don't sell a lot of things overseas because we just don't make that much, like that many good things, <laughs> at least on the kind of civil manufacturing scale in terms of like, how many people out there in the world are using Australian products for what they're not driving Australian cars, for instance, you know, just the kind of everyday civil things that, you know, not many of them are Australian. A fun fact on the podcast is that we, a lot of people worldwide use Australian microphones. You might even be using one now, but it's probably one of the only examples I could think of that we have like a world renowned status in. And I'm not sure whether our goal as a country should be to make the cheapest thing in some sense, but to make the most quality thing, because you would imagine that would drive, demand as well uh, is that kind of a correct assumption well i'll jump in first just to make sure i think i understand what we're talking about okay. and that is you know if we can't do the cheap thing mm. if we can do the quality thing and everyone does their own quality thing that is the way towards some sort of balance and mutuality in a global economy is that a fair statement Steph? i would say oh yeah well i mean you're kind of dancing around the i idea that you know countries should specialize in producing something they're really good at and then there are benefits to trade if every country does this sort of you know comparative advantage um david ricardo sort of you know no 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 i read about that in zach carter's book that was yucky i'm not going to say do one thing well but i'm going to say what you do even if you do 50 different things there's no point trying to do the cheap thing because in the long run you can get benefit while there's not wage growth somewhere else, but eventually you need to do better by your own people. That's the, that's it. That's it. Okay. The goal should that's not be, you know, what could we figure out how to manufacture here 
that the rest of the world would have a huge appetite for so that it would support demand and employment here. We could do, you can do that on your own, right? You don't want, and, and in a sense, you, you don't want to become dependent upon the rest of the world for so much of your aggregate demand, for your employment, for your wage growth and so forth, because when conditions in the rest of the world change and there's a disruption that you know, reduces demand, it's devastating. To As we're seeing with China economy, now. Right? Better to, yeah, better to look after conditions in your own economy, develop industries, produce what you need to produce to, you know, satisfy domestic demand, consumption, and that sort of thing. Keep people employed domestically. Not to say that, you know, there isn't also going to be an export market. You're not also going to produce things for the rest of the world, but to... Um, to say that the goal is to figure out how, what can we do really well that we can rely on the rest of the world to always be there to provide stable demand so that we can support employment and so forth, I think is, um, is a dangerous model because countries that do that get burned, especially when really? you know, they're small open economies, they become really dependent on the rest of the world to purchase their goods. And then there's a downturn in the rest of the world. And all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're in real trouble, right? So the reality is, is all economies need to be able to be a bit more self-sufficient for the good of their people. You know, buying stuff because that's an advantage to buy good stuff cheaper than you can make it yourself, but don't do it with everything. Or yeah, you, for sure. Everyone ends up vulnerable for different reasons. So what yeah. you're really talking about in that chapter is how do we have a global economy in which everyone is less vulnerable to the volatility of the whims of you know, demand and supply? You said it perfectly. Well, that seems if like I a. I understood what I said. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you could limit it to things that are effectively non-essential, right? Like, like a microphone. Like, it, you, that's not in, in at all in like a, a a need for a country to produce. Well, we have a need. Come on, dude. We love our microphones. Absolutely, but obviously not a need for any anyone else to necessarily make themselves, especially if it was a small state. And so that would be the kind of thing that you, you could kind of, I guess, specialize in and it wouldn't have any harm because you still have all these essential things that everyone just kind of creates. You can almost kind of two-tier classify things in that way. Well, yeah. I mean, look, in the US and around the world, we were all competing against one another for face masks and other personal protective equipment for ventilators. You know, we had countries bidding against one another, trying to get ventilators, trying to get PPE and so forth. So yes, it would be good if we had the redundancies built in, if we had stockpiles of these things in the US, if we had manufacturers who in spite of the fact that we can get them a little bit cheaper or even a lot cheaper by you know, purchasing some of the stuff from China or where else, we still ought to recognize that we need safeguards in place, that we have the productive capacity to ramp up and produce that kind of stuff in, in an emergency, right? There, as you're saying, there are certain things you just don't want to be reliant on mm. the rest of the world to produce. Um, well, that seems the logical place to do all the next modeling in terms of the automatic stabilization, right? In a globalized world, it doesn't seem like any coming from the non-economist point of view, doesn't seem like there's many people talking about or much or kind of many models looking at those kind of sovereign capability yeah, because there are, we, we know now that there were memos that, um, you know, this administration, when it came in, there were memos left for them saying, 
a global pandemic. Things like this could happen. Here is where we're vulnerable. We do not have this. We do not have this. We're ill-prepared in these ways. And if we had automatic stabilizer like the job guarantee, you could have people employed throughout the year producing some of the sort of things, right? Taking, recognizing these vulnerabilities, saying, all right, some of the things that we're going to pay people to do include um, producing PPE. We'll warehouse it. You know, maybe we'll never have to touch it, but we'll have it if we need it. And yeah, because that's the thing you're doing for national production. It's not destabilizing any market for any quality thing that a private company enjoys making. It's making sure that the 500 million masks are there for COVID round two. Totally yeah, different it, it, logic. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I was reading a piece uh, Naomi Klein wrote. Um, you know, she's, of course, the author of many books, including uh, the, her most recent, which is a book called On Fire, mm. uh, which is about the climate crisis. And uh, she had a very nice piece in, I don't know if it was Rolling Stone or The Atlantic or what I was reading the other morning, but just in the last week or so. And she was talking about um, the New Deal programs under FDR. And some of the kinds of things that people who were employed, directly employed, right, they created jobs in the National Youth Administration. These were jobs for young people in the Depression. And she said, you know, you had outbreaks of what the hell pathogen was it? It'll come to me. It wasn't cholera. Anyway, there was an outbreak and it became necessary to isolate people. The way to stop the transmission and get more and more people from getting sick was to quarantine somebody. But how do you do that? You're in a depression. You got families living together. Somebody gets ill. You need to be able to quarantine them. But where do you put them? Well, they sent these young people in and they built little tiny houses. And that's what they did, right? They said, okay, we have this national crisis underway. We'll use the um, job program to send people in. They'll build homes. We'll pull that person out. We can have a way to get food back and forth to that person until they're no longer contagious and they go back in. But that's just one example. You know, it's a sort of we could do PPE today. They built little houses. We could be building little houses today. You got people who in exactly the same situation, right? You need to be quarantined, but you're in a one-bedroom apartment with four people. What? How do you quarantine? You don't. You can't self-isolate. But there are a lot of things that we could be doing that we did in the past and did better than we're doing today that would combine some of these things that we've been talking about. A case for conservatism, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> this whole thing of bring the jobs home suddenly takes on a, a better meaning that it's not that we don't want to compete with the rest of the world. It's we don't want to compete on things that no one should compete on. Again, it's a ch changing the underlying rules of trade and power relations. And that's where, we, again, we have to be careful here to not stray into foreign policy because the implications are if you do this right, you automatically change the environment to a less hostile, less dangerous foreign environment because you agree yeah, that you're not going to do I, harm I, to each other. I think so. That's why I think I have a section in that chapter called, you know, from trade war to trade peace. Yeah. And just, you know, it's a, it is a change in the mindset. You know, what is, what are the goals of trade and yeah. what should we be trying to do internationally and cooperatively when it comes to trade deals and trade relationships and so forth. So yes, it definitely, as you said, it requires a fundamentally different mindset about, you know, how to approach your trading partners and what is the aim. You even have you know, very progressive politicians. I think I name check some in the book 
who say, you know, when we become president or when we get in power, we're going to beat China. We're going to, well, you know, I'd like to see us move away from that sort of framing in terms of what trade is supposed to be about. That sounds like a good point to not ask you any more questions about international trade unless you think there's anything we should have asked to fill in a gap. No, I think we can let it lie. Okay, because it's one of those things that sounds like really it just could grow bigger and bigger and bigger. The hardest chapter for me to write, for sure. Does that mean theoretically there is going to be a second book? Oh, I think so. Uh, I'm right now. I'm working on new introductions for the paperback version uh, here in the U.S. for the Japanese edition, for the U.K. edition, for some European. So everybody wants, you know, speak directly to this wow. this area. So once I get through those, uh, I've already cobbled out maybe half of the chapters for a next book. Well, and obviously you're now committed to reading it, aren't you? Right. <laughs> I think this time I would have fun. You know, the the funny thing, I've only told this story once before, but um, you can cut all this, obviously. Uh, but you're, you know, you're sitting in this little booth and you do read nonstop. I mean, you take a little lunch break, but you're in this tiny uh, studio reading your book for 10 hours a day or so for three solid days. And there's a little table next to you and they have a banana, some tea, you know, tea bags, hot tea bags, and some honey. And so the idea is, right, that you get a little bite to eat if you need it, but you keep your throat moistened and, and, and you just read. The problem is you drink the tea and then your stomach starts to gurgle. So the <laughs> microphones are so sensitive that they pick up everything. So you're reading along and then the person on the other side of the plexiglass, you know, the tech guy, pushes a little button and in your ear you hear stomach and he said, so that's your cue to stop. And then he tells you where, where the noise happened. And then you start, you see, he'll say, pick up from. And so you start to read. And then he pushes the button, stomach. And, and you start to read. I cannot tell you how many times over the course of three days, this poor guy had to say, gurgle, stomach. And you think, wow, you know, I don't hear it. I don't even feel it. But he's picking it up on the other side. So... Do you want that left in or do you want it out? What's your choice? I don't care. I don't care. It's we a funny like it. story. It's an awesome story. It's ridiculous. It probably added three hours to the recording. <laughs> you realize, you know, how many sounds your body makes involuntarily. Oh, no. <laughs> I can't See, we don't have gear that good and we don't want gear that good. We'll temporarily. <laughs> well, yeah. But I also don't want to be sitting down and trying to record. <laughs> Being the Google guy. <laughs> Holy cow. Mate, yeah. It's hard enough trying to edit, you know, an hour-long podcast. I must admit, it's, it's such an impressive effort when they get through the whole thing and there's just like no mistakes and there's no retakes or anything. It's fantastic. So, anyway, that aside, it sounds like we'll be trying to talk to you again. Maybe not in the near future, but perhaps in the lead up to your next book. That would be really interesting to kind of get a scoop on that. But uh, in the meantime, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Stephanie. This is an absolute pleasure. Well, thanks for having me back. I enjoyed it again very much. Thank you very much, Stephanie. And thank you, listeners, for once again wanting to learn about the things we find interesting. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. 
thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out. Hold up. 